You're listening to Copper and Heat, the podcast exploring the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurant kitchens. I'm Katie Osuna. We're actually interrupting our usual schedule to bring you an episode from another project that the Copper and Heat team has been working on. It's a new podcast miniseries called The Makers. We produced it in partnership with Chef's Feed, a culinary expert-powered media company, and Maker's Mark. Yeah, the bourbon company. We worked with them to produce four episodes and have hosted live events across the country chatting with chefs about their approach to the craft. We just wrapped up with our very last live event in D.C. last week. The episode that we're sharing here is the very first in the series with chefs Gabriales, Rico Torres, and Diego Galicia, who run Mexican restaurants in Texas. We talked about their approaches to Mexican cuisine and how they're a part of the next evolution in this long tradition of Mexican food. The style is a little bit different than Copper and Heat, but I absolutely loved talking with these chefs, and we had some really interesting conversations, so I think you're going to like it as well. If you like what you hear, you can check out the rest of the podcast. There are three other episodes, as well as some really awesome videos at chefsfeed.com makers. We'll be back with the next episode of Season 2 of Copper and Heat in a couple weeks. We'll be discussing the financial challenges related to illness and injury with Giving Kitchen, a nonprofit based out of Georgia that helps restaurant workers in crisis. But for now, here's Episode 1 of The Makers. Defining what's Mexican food and what isn't always comes from the people that aren't Mexican, which is fine, but it, it's so interesting to me. Dude, it's so refreshing, dude. It's so refreshing to hear that. I thought it was just Rico and I, and it burns my brain, bro. It burns my brain <laughs> when we get a really bad review. And I'm like, how can we go from like people loving this restaurant, coming back twice in a week to somebody saying that it's complete trash and it's a Mexican food? And I really thought, man, we were alone in this. This is The Makers, a podcast from Chef's Feed in paid partnership with Makers Mark Bourbon, about chefs with one-of-a-kind approaches to their craft. I'm your host, Katie Osuna. We're doing this alongside Makers Mark, whose bourbon stays true to their founder's vision of a whiskey made by hand and full of character. The makers in each episode of this podcast are chefs that approach their craft in a way that might not be the most efficient or cost-effective, but it gives their food distinct character. Today on the show, we're super excited to have Gabriales, Diego Galicia, and Rico Torres, who are chefs of Mexican restaurants in Texas. Gabriales. Gabe cooks Mexican-inspired cuisine that pays homage to his family. Heavily influenced by his time in the kitchens of Jesse Griffiths in Austin and Rene Redzepi in both Copenhagen and in the pop-up in Tulum, Gabe's food is a representation of his respect for ingredients. Hey, I'm Rico Torres. Diego Galicia. The menu at Diego and Rico's restaurant changes every 45 days, with each menu exploring a different region or era in Mexico's history. Diego and Rico spend weeks and sometimes months doing research for each of the menus, paying special attention to indigenous ingredients and pre-Hispanic techniques to create thought-provoking conversations through food. Each of these chefs has done a lot to elevate ingredients and recipes from Mexico and start conversations around what they think the next evolution of Mexican cuisine is. I think this is something that each of you has talked about in different ways and at different points. I know you all bring in a lot of heritage and tradition in your food, but a lot of people talk about how your food is very modern and innovative. And I was wondering what that means to you. We've had this conversation before. Modern, uh, I don't necessarily agree with 
that term. If anything, you know, we're trying to go back in time. And that's something that we've talked about for a long time, recognize that we have this ability to time travel. And we're one of the few professions that we can do that because everything's been chronicled for, you know, thousands of years. About three years ago, Rico, we made the menu based on the conquest of Mexico mm-hmm. by the Spanish. And we were sitting, him and I, in the kitchen. We're like, all right, man, we're going to do this menu. It's really cool because it's super old and we have no idea what's going on, you know? So we decided to to start back in the 1400s, you know, Hernán Cortés back in Extremadura in Spain. And, and then we just laser focused on what they were eating back in the part of Spain in that time, you know? That menu took over a year of research. We were also lucky enough that everything had been beautifully chronicled. And so you could look back onto it and you see that... You know, the soldiers arrive on the beach and Hernán Cortés doesn't know what to expect. So everybody stay in your armor in the beaches of Veracruz, 90, 100 degrees, sun beating down on you and you're wearing leather and metal day and night. Going to the court of the emperor back then just gives you goosebumps to think about it, you know. The Aztecs had never seen a horse before. They thought the rider and the horse were one big creature. That's incredible to think about, you know, that these people had no idea what a horse looked like or a chicken or a cow. The Spaniards write back to the crown that they're finding deer and jackrabbits and skinny pigs and also cherries and nopal and the ladies in the tribes were making corn cakes i don't don't think they were talking about tortillas but something a little heartier that you could carry with you that's really interesting while you're doing any of this research is there something that was particularly surprising to you one of the most interesting things that we found when we were doing that research was the what's it called spirulina yeah spirulina teclawatl so the the Aztecs were actually pulling out this ooze from the lake, drying it out on land, and forming it into bricks, and then eating it with chilmole. And, and Hernán Cortés writes back to the crown, they eat it like we eat cheese, and when taken with chilmole, it's absolutely delicious. And this was more consumed in the entire Aztec empire than any other protein. And nowadays, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a bona fide superfood. And it's something really special that we didn't know that had come out of Mexico. And so we, we showed that. We made a little... Uh, like a little crisp out of the spirulina with chia seeds and pepitas and an aged salsa that I had at the time that was aged about a year at that time. It's going on five years now. And avocado and squash blossoms. It was a great experience to do that. It's something we still think about. And I think it was one of the highlights of, of that research and that turning point in Mexico's history. So we made this menu of really old food, you know, really that stuff that people had never seen before or recipes that hadn't been uncovered, you know, for hundreds of years. So Yeah, that totally makes sense. Gabe, I did see you kind of nodding along as they were talking about this idea of modern cuisine. Feel free to jump in. You know, I personally don't like that term or don't like any of my food being labeled as modern cuisine because, you know, really it's up to the chef to kind of reinterpret things that inspire them. You look at a churro and and so many Mexican restaurants, both high-end, low-end street food. You know, really when you look at it, it's it's a vessel, right? A vessel for carrying a sauce. We were looking at the menu and I was like, man, you know, you go out to a restaurant and you have a good chicken liver mousse or a pate and you always have like a really flavorful vessel, whether it's a lavash or a cracker. And, you know, the first thing that came to mind is, well, why don't we make a churro? to serve with a pate. So that's something we're doing on our menu now and it's very elevated and it's dusted in cacao and spices and chiles and it's not a dessert. I think that's kind of a way of looking at things is how do you take something that is associated you know, with a certain place on a menu and make it something better or make it something else? Yeah, to G's point, a few menus ago, we made a pasta with uh, with la coche, remember Rico? 
And then yeah. we we shaved a ton of black truffles on top. Yeah. And it just kind of made sense <laughs> for us, you know. It's like this like mushroomy, fungi kind of thing. And then the, the black truffle on top. It was like it was a phenomenal dish. Mexican, probably not. I mean, Benito Juarez, one of our presidents, we've had a long time ago. His wife was of Italian descent, so I was like, kind of makes sense, you know. Even though it's not a Mexican dish, it has a reason why it cannot be a Mexican dish. And we just went with it, and it was absolutely delicious. I think moving forward now, we just have to make really delicious food. You know, like we focus a lot on other things and if it tastes good, you know, like who cares? Well, I'd like to comment on this because right now my mind is blown with the feedback that I get from guests. The non-Mexicans are the ones that are writing in or leaving comments saying, this is not Mexican food. We get a, an extremely, extremely large amount of Mexicans that are in town traveling from Mexico. And those are the ones that tell us that their minds are blown and that they feel like they're Mexico and transported and, you know, that some of the food tastes like their abuelitas. For me and, and the food that we're doing, the feedback of defining what's Mexican food and what isn't always comes from the people that aren't Mexican, which is fine, but it's so interesting to me. Dude, it's so refreshing, dude. It's so refreshing to hear that. I thought it was just Rico and I, and it burns my brain, bro. It burns my brain <laughs> when we get a really bad review. And I'm like, how can we go from like people loving this restaurant coming back twice in a week to somebody saying that it's complete trash and it's on Mexican food? And I really thought, man, we were alone in this. I really thought we were alone in this. And I tell Rico, like, man, I don't know, man. Like, we got this really rude guy sent us an email the other day saying that he could eat a eight dollar bowl of menudo somewhere. And I was like, God, man, like, like, how is that possible? You know? And it's always from people that They've never been to Mexico. They have no idea what smaller fine dining restaurants are all about. Their comparison point is somewhere along Taco Bell, Taco Cabana kind of situation. Like that's their standard. That's their gold standard. And it's just, it's so demoralizing sometimes. But then you just keep on pushing and you get another wave of guests that just rave about the restaurant. And, and that's so good to hear from you, Gabe, because I was like, man, I don't know, man. I think we're alone in this. Like, it's good to hear that we go through the same through the same pains, you know? It's kind of been motivation for me to change the way we plate too, because, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm not trying to do traditional Mexican food. I'm trying to highlight Mexican ingredients and I'm trying to make food that tastes good. And uh, it kind of drove me to want to make simpler food. Our steak that we put on the menu, it's literally a dry-aged Wagyu steak and a chichilo negro and tortillas, and that's it. And we let that shine. And behind that mole, there's a lot of technique. There's a lot of really special ingredients that adds value to, adds a perceived value in that respect. To, to that point, people complain about pricing all the time. Oh, it's so expensive, it's so expensive. Well, you make it. Like literally you make it. Try making this yourself at home. Like Rico spends hours making mole, hours. I get to the restaurant, he's been here early, like toasting stuff outside, burning stuff outside. Like it takes a long time. You know, it sounds simple, but it takes three chefs to kind of get the things going. and. People need to understand that behind the pricing, it's more than just what the ingredients cost. There's a lot of time invested in them, you know? Yeah, good good stuff. It's okay if it costs money. When it comes to criticism, I think that, I mean, if it's real criticism, if like, hey, guys, uh, love the restaurant, the food is under season, things like that, hey, we're all going to sit back, reevaluate what we're doing, and make sure that things are coming out right. But if it's something like, I got threatened because we didn't have bread on the table, that we didn't offer her iced tea, and then she threatened to report me to the restaurant bureau, whatever that is. <laughs> it's just like, look, if you just want to go off on somebody, I'll listen, but it's not going to change what we're doing here because I think that the effort and time that we put into it means more than your lack of information on what this is supposed to be. And like to what Gabe said, if you can taste that mole and you can taste Mexico and, and the balance between acidity and sweetness and bitter, 
I mean, those molars are incredible. This is so many ingredients and so much time in them. If you can understand it with that one spoonful, then you're going to enjoy the dinner. I'll, I'll accept your criticism. We're doing a mole right now that, that's a little more sick. And this guy's like, this is the worst mole. It's not even sweet and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, that's not what it's about. And I usually try to give a little lesson while they're eating moles, but I guess he didn't hear that one. Things change all the time. This is a great learning experience for ourselves and also for our guests. And hopefully in 10 years, you know, these conversations will be more about, I don't know, how good was the quality of the ingredient as to whether or not this is actual Mexican food. Because I'm half Mexican, Diego's full Mexican, we're making food. Does that not qualify it? It's just what it is. I mean, we're, it's constantly evolving. With doing something in a new way comes the challenge of getting people to change their perception of what Mexican food is. Growing up with such a strong culinary tradition, how do Gabe, Rico, and Diego get to think about food beyond the traditional way? More on that after a quick break. Back in 1953, when Bill and Margie Samuels founded Maker's Mark, they wanted to do something that hadn't been done before with bourbon. Back then, bourbon was a rough drink that could blow your ears off. The bourbon that the Samuels family made wasn't any different. So Bill went back to the source, the recipe. He started making a new kind of bourbon that used red winter wheat instead of the traditional rye for flavoring. The result was a new style of bourbon with a softer, smoother finish. So what did Bill call this new bourbon? Well, that's where Bill's wife comes in. Margie wasn't too concerned that bourbon was a man's business back then. Inspired by the Maker's Mark that pewter whitesmiths put on their best work, she dreamed up the name Maker's Mark, designed the label, and even came up with the idea to hand dip every bottle in red wax. And just as every drop of Maker's Mark stays true to Bill Sr.'s vision, every dip of the bottle stays true to Margie's, still to this day. Gabe, Diego, and Rico do incredible things at their restaurants that pay respect to the fact that Mexican food is an evolving tradition. So I asked them to share a little bit about their first memories of food, their personal journeys to cooking for a living, and how they evoke emotions in their guests. Here's what Diego had to say. I remember the first time I came across that flour tortilla from my grandma. In the South, we eat corn tortillas. In the North, it's uh, pretty much always flour. And I remember the first time, it was life-changing because it was just butter on it, yeah? with butter and rolled it up into a little roll and, and, and that was it. So that's my first memory of something that to me was kind of groundbreaking back then was meeting a flour tortilla. I'm from a city southwest of Mexico City about an hour away called Toluca. And I've had the fortune of being exposed to both sides of the country. My mom's family is from the northern part, from Coahuila. And then my, my father, he's from the southern part of the country, uh, a small town called Amatepec in the border of Guerrero. Gabe, what about you? Any early food memories that stick out? My family came to the U.S. from the Yucatan and Chetumal and Merida. So I, I grew up around, you know, that kind of regional cuisine. And one of the first things that my mom taught me how to cook was like cochinita pibil. So I have these early memories of seeing achiote stains all over the table mats and the linens and whatnot. And I never knew what that was. I always thought it was blood as a kid. <laughs> but also things like making tamales, the simple things that were holiday festivities, making tamales and, and moles and things like that were just really, really special to me. Rico, did you grow up around food too? I grew up in my grandma's kitchen and it was never a small production. 13 kids and then later 13 kids with their kids. I got to see the whole family gathered around at grandma's house, grandma's table. When we moved to El Paso, it was the same thing. Growing up there and watching her 
bring stinky cheeses from Mexico that I didn't understand. And I remember watching her build fires in the backyard and cooking tamales out there. We grew up in West Texas. So Gabe, you know about this, you know, roasting chiles right around this time of the year is like one of the best smells in the world. I'm wondering how you all got into cooking professionally, since you all obviously were around food when you were younger. But what kind of cuisines were you cooking when you were getting into kitchens? And were you cooking Mexican food or other kinds of food? What did that look like? Uh, cooking came as, a, as an accident, out of necessity. I was going to go to college, and then I was going to actually want to be a cop. And I was going to go to the academy, and that was going to be my life. But I stayed. I enjoyed it. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do this for a living, I should learn how to do it properly. I was in my 20s already. I was... 24 maybe when I decided to go to cooking school for whatever reason I got a, a scholarship at the CIA here in town and like I think all the other schools it's French cuisine you know you start making French food for a long time all day every day so it just became making French food but the technique is pretty much the same you apply it you know to any other any other food so graduated I went to Chicago San Francisco I went back to Mexico City for a while and then when I came back shortly after it's when I met Rico um, and then they just everything just kind of fell into place I don't know when I chose food. I think you chose me first. Two things collided right around the time I was turning 23, 24, was that I had a deep drive to be creative, but at the same time, I couldn't work under somebody else. I just, I was no good at authority. I was fired from almost every single job <laughs> for changing menus, for changing dishes. A few months later, I met a guy that I was working with at a restaurant. He's had a catering company. And he said, hey, come work for me. I'll show you what I do. Anytime I was asked to do anything or that mini menu that I would put out, it was immediate research and testing. And we'd only try to do high-end caterings, never try to do the quinceanera with the $5 enchilada plate. <laughs> but um, I taught myself a lot. It was mostly I was very interested in Mediterranean and Italian cuisines. All my background was really the Mexican cuisines that I learned from my grandma. And they come out of Zacatecas, a different region than these two gentlemen. Slowly that started getting implemented, but... It wasn't until Diego came to me with the idea of the restaurant. I had recently read something that Rene Redzepi had wrote that he was focused now in Nordic cuisine. And that triggered something for me. I felt like I had been all over the place with the catering and I really wanted to focus on something. And that's what we did. And Gabe, you spent some time with Rene Redzepi and his team in Copenhagen, as well as their pop-up in Tulum. What was that like? And that was just, you know, probably the the highlight of my my cooking career and something I look back on because it was the first time that I'd been able to go into a room and see the best of the best ingredients from every corner of Mexico. It was really inspiring to me to be able to be there and, you know, cook with Mexican ingredients, not necessarily Mexican food, but also to see the communities and the, the different people traveling from all over Mexico to be inspired by their ingredients. Walking away from that, coming back, I partnered up with Jesse Griffiths and opened up a taqueria and kind of using that same cooking philosophy of locality, but we were focusing a little bit more on wild game, wild boar, venison, things like that. I had already developed a love for heirloom corn, so we had started a big masa program and sourcing heirloom corn from different regions of Mexico. And I found a guy in Mexico when I was traveling by the name Francisco and he was basically finding these small communities of people that had been growing heirloom corn for hundreds of years. And rather than finding people growing commercially, he was buying their surplus off. So it was an opportunity to support local communities that were growing corn, but also taking this off and supplying them with a different type of commercialization that wasn't, you know, them being exploited commercially. 
And then for us, it was really cool because they only had limited supply. So it forced us to change corn varieties from month to month. You know, one month we're sourcing from Nayaret, the other month it's maybe the Estado de Mexico. And we're just seeing these amazing, beautiful varieties of corn. Yeah, what Gabe's talking about is amazing. Gabe, I don't know if you've woken up in the middle of the night wondering how long you left the, the corn nixtamalizing and if it's too long, but that's the kind of beautiful worries that an artisan should have. And that's what makes it really special. And it's an old, ancient tradition. I mean, it goes back millennia. It's really special to be able to have those types of techniques and then put them into our restaurant. And it's not about recreating a dish. A lot of times it's just trying to understand these ingredients again and playing with them and seeing them in new lights and bringing new life to them. That's really our take is to try to rescue these recipes as well and traditions, but also to push them forward, to promote them, to make them exciting so that young kids especially those that might have been raised eating fast food or not knowing what a traditional Mexican family meal could look like. And then they see, they see what this has to offer and they get excited about it. That's something really special for our mission. It makes it, it, it makes it that much more important. Remember the first time when we first opened the restaurant, we were going to make chocolate, remember? We got this big <laughs> shipment of cacao beans yeah. and we started toasting them and taking the house cuff and put them to the molino. And it was a pretty incredible experience because the smells are just, you know, something in your DNA that just kind of like speaks to you, you know? That's the first time I think we're going to have that conversation about something in your blood kind of awakens. All those ingredients are in you already from thousands of years before, generations before you. Rico and myself, you know, we're the mixture of Spanish and indigenous people to Mexico and G as well, Gabe as well. So all these ingredients speak to you when you're working with corn or you're making chocolate from cacao beans. Like there's something in you that nobody unless they are of Mexican descent, can really kind of get, get to experience. And it's it's a really cool thing to, to witness. Yeah, exactly. You know, you theoretically know what the process is, but until you get, you know, the blood on your hands, you're just kind of, like he said, awakened. I mean, the majority of the population has only had tortillas made from maseca, right? And the first time you get dry corn and you cook it, and you know that you see these skins falling off and you put it through a molino and you smell this incredible aroma that your life has changed and your tortillas are ruined for you everywhere you go. The funny thing is that tortillas are not easy. <laughs> they're not easy, they're, they're incredibly hard. The tortilla is the most complex part of a taco anywhere. One of the things that I think set us apart from other people cooking Mexican food in Austin is the ingredients we use and, and building relationships with people in Mexico and bringing, you know, Pasia Mije from Oaxaca. Because if everybody is using the same chilies from the same vendor that are grown commercially here in the, in the States, everything is going to taste the same. Not one of my cooks has ever had uh, a Pasia Mije de Oaxaca. They were just blown away. It's a special chili. Or having like fresh wheat lacoche shipped to us from Mexico. Everything doesn't always have to be local. I think it's a balance, a give and take of, you know, supporting your local farmers of what's good. So for, for me, when I approach a menu, I, I try and find ways to highlight ingredients that I find interesting, to mm -hmm. that I find it's nostalgic. Speaking of approaches to menu development, what other kinds of things are you thinking about when you're coming up with dishes? I talked about the first time my mom taught me how to make cochinita pibil, and I will always have some root to that on a menu. You know, right now I have a mamela of cochinita on my menu, and it's very simple. There's nothing innovative about it, but it's, to me it's done very honestly and very purely, and, and it's delicious. And if you, if you don't f*** it up, you know, people are going to order it. It's our second biggest seller. And then on the flip side of that, you know, I come across things that I feel like people don't really know much about and should know about. For example, hozontles. Hozontles are 
basically the, the young flower of a plant that looked like amaranth flower, but they're, they're actually in the quinoa family and it's a superfood from Mexico. Uh, in Mexico City, they'll take all the buds off and blanch them and, and fry them like a chile relleno and stuff them with cheese. And we're doing it a little bit different and making a fritter out of it, but still it's this really, really beautiful plant. It's very healthy and it's a weed essentially. And you know, every guest that comes through the doors at our restaurant has no idea what it is, but they love it. And, you know, when you're able to educate people on Mexican cuisine, Mexican ingredients, I, I think there's something very special to be said about that. Yeah, I think for the longest time, Mexican food in the country went through this, like, slump. It was pretty dormant. It was just defined by, you know, moles and tacos. And it just kind of was dormant for a long time. And then um, there was this explosion of just creativity. And I think it really started with chefs like Enrique Olvera and, and Jorge. They started to really focus on very specific place of the country and making people understand that it's not necessarily cheap food or has to be cheap food, you know? And at the restaurant, I think that's what we've been very careful of is really polishing ingredients and elevating them to something that the guests can be like, hey, this is not the Mexican food that I grew up knowing what that it was like. You know, this is not cheap or fast. It's it's more elaborate and it requires a certain level of care to execute, right? So I think that now with places like Gabe's and our restaurant, it, you know, we're promoting and pushing ingredients. We're kind of putting them on a pedestal that people can enjoy them more. Diego Enrico, since you approach each menu with a theme, either a point in time or a region, what does the menu creation process look like? Like right now we're doing Yucatan, right? So we see with a team and uh, we say, hey guys, we're doing Yucatan next month. What do people eat? And then we get bombarded with the staff, all these you know messages and emails about, hey, I've been reading about this and I've been reading about the Mayas eat this and they have these ingredients available. But then we find a way, Rico and I, to really... Uh, either change the way they look in a way that's really memorable for the guest. Because I think that's what keeps guests coming back is that we kind of like transform certain ingredients and, and dishes to something that kind of stays in their brains for a while. And I think fine dining, that's part of the trick. So the recipes exist. It's a matter of really digging them out of the ground because they're so old sometimes. And then putting them in a way that the guests go home with them in their heads thinking, hey, that was really cool how they did that. Although we were already, you know, it's already a, a dish that's common to the area. I remember the first year for us, creating dishes was very emotional. I remember getting goose, like goose pimples and even getting a little teary-eyed sometimes because there were things that I hadn't thought about how or why they were made or when or how much effort or labor had to go into something to, to make it happen. And for us, we get to do this uh, on the stage of a beautiful restaurant and it's exciting and it's fine dining. And I'm very lucky for that. But a lot of this stuff also started in somebody's home outside on an open fire hours before the rest of the family woke up with a ton of preparation and a ton of work. And it was, you know, that was life. And it was a beautiful thing as hard as it was. And those are things that I think about or that's what's going on with me when I'm working on one of these things. And so really honoring those, those histories for me is important. One of the first things we wanted to do when we opened the restaurant was really try to get an emotional experience out of somebody. If somebody could cry because they remembered something that they smelled in market when they were little on their way to school or something that their grandma would make or just flavors or sensations or emotions that were tied to a memory of, of a meal. And if we could evoke that here at the restaurant, I knew that it was a successful night. I think it's really interesting that you all have talked about the feedback that you've received from guests and obviously mostly positive, but some of the feedback about things not being authentic. 
And I know that this is something that a lot of people talk about right now, but authenticity as well as appropriation. And so I'm wondering if that's something that y'all have talked about before or what y'all are thinking about that. I really believe that if your heart is pure with intentions of really paying respect to ingredients, you should be able to cook whatever you want. I've always been a firm believer that um, the moment you're born, you're inherited these amazing things that every culture has to offer. If you're Mexican, you want to do Chinese food, you can. If you're Jamaican, you want to make Italian, you can. Like you own these things because you're a human being. And the moment you're born, this gift is given to you. Always as soon, as long as your intentions are pure, you know? If you want to respect the culture, respect the ingredients, you can do whatever you want. Um, so it's uh, that's something I'm really passionate about. I want people to know that don't be scared if you want to cook a cuisine because you're not born in that place. You know, it belongs to you. It belongs to all of us. You know, if you're out there, young cook, you want to cook something that's not your ethnicity, you are 100% able, able to because you are our owner of that by purely being born a human creature. You know, I know for me, for the, the cooking I did with the guys from Copenhagen for their Tulum pop-up, you know, misos and things like that really influenced me because I found ways of adding new flavors to the dish with Mexican ingredients, you know, like amasa miso, things like that. There was a lot of debate on, you know, for a bunch of Danish guys coming to, to cook with Mexican ingredients, but there was really, really a bunch of good intentions behind it and a lot of things done for a lot of communities. Mexican food is still evolving from dozens of years ago. What G is doing now with making misos, that's just the natural progression of Mexican food. Think about it. Somebody started thousands of years ago down in Mexico, these tribes of Mexicas and Olmecas started cooking. G and us and others, we are the natural progression of Mexican food. It's not a defined quiz. It's not over. It's not like, all right, guys, well, that's the last chapter of Mexican food. Everything else you make now is total shit. That's such a big thing to understand that people like G making these things, these masamisos, and it's just a natural progression of food in Mexico. Isn't that crazy? I just thought about it right now when you said it. Like you, we are still writing that chapter of, of, of cooking. And then in, in 50 years, someone else will carry on and do something else that's going to be defined as Mexican food. I just, it just blew my mind right now when you said that, man. I just had that big revelation because that's the natural progression of things. So we just picked up whoever else left. We just picked up their notebook and we keep writing the story of Mexican food. That's a big thing I just realized. Wow. G blew yeah. my mind. Thanks, G. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yeah, Gabe. Gabe, we'll see you, we'll we'll see you, see you soon. soon, man. All right, man. Love you, boys. Love you, brother. Love you. The Makers Podcast is brought to you by Chef's Feed in partnership with Makers Mark Bourbon. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a review. Plus, check out chefsfeed.com makers for more stories and videos from these chefs and others. This episode was produced by Katie Osuna with special thanks to Kristen Cabrera and Mariah Gossett. Music, mixing, and additional production by Ricardo Osuna. Editor is Rachel Palmer. Next time on The Makers, we're going to talk with Jerome Grant and Richie Brandenburg about the special role of a mentor in teaching the craft of whole animal butchery. Makers Mark Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, 45% alcohol per volume. Copyright 2019, Makers Mark Distillery Incorporated, Loretto, Kentucky. I'm Katie Osuna. Thanks for listening.